Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, the plasmid addict, Dagan Moriarty. Welcome to the Circus of Values. <laughs> Get some more money, buddy. I like when it says that to you when you try to buy something without that so money. Good. Oh my God. I can't wait to get into this. Hey guys. Dagan. Today's episode, I've been doing, I've been waiting a long time to do this episode. You really have. This is one of my very favorite games of all time. It's a game you just played for the first time, mm-hmm. which I'm so this is gonna be a great episode. It's all about Bioshock, the 2007 game from published by 2K, made, of course, by what would become Irrational Games, headed by Ken Levine. And it's widely considered one of the great games of the 21st century. And I think it's probably, I don't know, I'd really have to sit and think about it, but with the exception of maybe the last, it was probably my favorite game of the century. So wow, far. I was going to ask you that. Yeah. Wow, cut right to the chase. Yeah, an absolutely almost flawless game. And I just played it again. You had just played it for the first time. I think I played it through now for the third or fourth time. I was going to ask. Okay. I have two platinum trophies in it, one on PS3, one on PS4. Ooh. And I just played it through again. And it's absolutely perfect. I mean, it, it does get a little flat at the end. I think the story gets a little weird at the end, but it feels great. It looks great. It sounds great. It's written great. It stands the test of time. And I'm really, really excited to talk about it. Not only to celebrate it with you and celebrate it with the audience out there, but also to introduce it, hopefully, to a whole new legion of people that, for some strange reason, have not played the game called Bioshock. Could happen. So before we get into it, Dagan, we have, as we always do, a few things to get through. The first thing is that this show is a retro and nostalgia podcast. I'm sure a lot of you know that by now, since we are well over 50 episodes in. If you like the show and you want it a week early ad-free, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. It doesn't only net you episodes of Knockback seven days early. It also gives you a lot of perks for my other shows, including Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast. You get exclusive podcasts. You get the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to the show that are read throughout as you're about to find out and lots of other perks. So we really appreciate you there. If you don't want to support us on Patreon and listen on free feeds, that's okay too. Please consider leaving us nice reviews so we can find new audiences for our lovely show. Dagan, we also like to start and end with segments, new segments that you bring up. So we're going to start with our new segment for this particular wave, which we're calling Win, Lose, and Draw. (laughs) That's correct, my friend. Thank you for that brilliant segue. So again, this is a very, uh, we explained in the first ep, but in case you guys missed it, Colin and I will do a sort of Pictionary-based or based on the 80s classic game show, Win, Lose, or Draw. And Colin's going to draw a picture, Pictionary-style. And see if I could guess it. He has a minute. There's a broad range of categories. Hold on, Kyle. Okay. So we're going to get, a ca- we have two bowls with folded pieces of paper with which we will choose from. Exactly. So Colin's going to pick a category. These are broad categories. He's going to draw something. He's not going to tell me what it is. I'm going to guess. And. Who's the broad? Yeah. Who do? Who, no. Oh. 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 <laughs> and. Fuck you, Santa. <laughs> 
<laughs> and somebody, one of these lucky listeners, well, knockback listeners, Patreon supporters, maybe unlucky. <sighs> we're trying to figure that you're out. You're going to get a parcel. <laughs> is going to win this drawing. Colin and I are going to sign it, send it in the mail. And Kyle, let's pick the name first. Yes? Yes, let's pick the name. Okay, I'm going to hold out the bowl. Okay. Colin's going to pick a name out of this bowl. So that's 60 names or so in there. Let's see. This is Simon Conception Jr. Okay. Simon, Simon Conception Jr., you are about to get a horrifying drawing sent to your mail. <laughs> it's going to be worth money someday, Simon. And now we're going to choose the topic. Now Colin's going to pick a topic. This could be anything. I could say draw a style of clothing. It could be anything. It's a very broad topic. Colin's going to pick something specific right. in his head to draw. Colin, you pick from that bowl. And you read it to us. And it's worth noting, by the way, that while this is an audio podcast, we will be putting these up on social media as well. Yes. And we'll make it. Here's the paper. You guys hear it. it. There you go. All right. So yours is draw something iconic from the 80s. Oh. All right. Okay. So Colin's going to have a minute. I'm going to time him. He's got his Sharpie and he's got his typing paper. And again, like Colin said, we're going to post this on Twitter when the episode goes up. Each drawing is going to be posted as a companion piece to each episode. And Colin, I got a minute on the clock. He's got to sharpen his paper. Yep. Just draw something iconic from the 80s. I'm going to try to this guess. This is going to be iconic for us, by the way. Not iconic for like everybody, but okay. something from the 80s that's iconic to us. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Is that okay? I like it. All right. All right. And go. We got a minute on the clock for Colin. And he's drawing. I hear that Sharpie scribbling away. I love the, the, the sound of Sharpie on a piece of paper. It's my favorite. This is horrible. I wonder what Colin will draw. You know what the first thing I keep thinking of when I wrote this? You know what I was thinking? I haven't of? seen it in a while, funny. so I don't know if I'm doing it right. This would be funny if Colin actually draw, drew the thing I thought of first. Kyle, I'm going to guess while you're drawing, which is a little unconventional. Is it Teddy Ruxpin? I don't even understand how you would think that I would possibly be able to draw that. (laughs) I don't know why I keep thinking Teddy Ruxpin. Hold on. Okay, you got about 30 seconds left. All right. I'm going to draw another one because I don't think I did it very well. You could draw. And again, Colin could draw as many things on that one sheet or as little as he wants. Whatever he thinks is going to convey convey the drawing clearly so that I, 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 I'm, I'm done. This is about the best I can do. Really? Yeah. Okay. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay, because you got to I want to see if seconds. this is horrible. This is even worse than the first All one. Right, and now I only have one guess, guys, so you don't know the rules. Bring, bring it over. I know what it is. I know exactly what this is. This is the Cobra logo. <laughs> yes. It's definitely the Cobra logo. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right, Kyle. I'm going to ask you to sign this. All right. And that's for Simon, right? Yep. Oh, Simon, you are a lucky son of a gun. Here you if go. We will Joe make sure fan, to put that up on the uh, if you're a social media. Fan, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even close. Well done. Like I can see it in my head, but for some reason it just can't translate. You know what? I don't think anybody. I, th- I think everybody would get that. You think so? I think so. I think so. I think you're two for two so far. You Colin drew the Dreamcast. He had to draw a game console. I mean, let's be honest. Him, so Picasso couldn't paint either, and, lo- and look how famous he was. There you go. I'm like, I just want to annoy oh someone out there. It's, it's divisive. <laughs> <laughs> let's be honest. Monet had no talent. Everyone understood what he had, what he was painting. So it's no big deal. Well All right. Done. Well, well, Simon done. Conception Jr., you have a parcel in the mail coming towards you soon. You do and indeed. we apologize in advance <laughs> for that. 
Dagan, as we said, today's topic is Bioshock. Bioshock, of course, is a video game that came out August 21st, 2007. It was first available on PC and Xbox 360. It came out on PlayStation 3 the following year in 2008, 2008, I'm sorry. And then the Bioshock Collection, which is available on PS4, Xbox One, and PC, which came out in 2016, includes Bioshock, Bioshock 2, and Bioshock Infinite. Bioshock 2, of course, came out, I think, in 2010. Bioshock Infinite in 2013. We're going to do separate episodes for Bioshock 2 and Infinite and the Burial at Sea and all of that DLC that's really oh, important cool. that That'll ties it all back in. So we'll do multiple sweet, Bioshock episodes. Sweet. This is all about the first game. And I, although I actually think Bioshock 2 is incredibly underrated and I think Bioshock Infinite is a great game. We're not going to talk about them today. Okay. Okay. Dagan hasn't played them yet. It's not worth spoiling no, them. The story gets incredibly complicated and we would need to go through the DLC and all that. We don't have that kind of time. Right? Now, Kyle, I didn't realize I had no idea before I played this and researched it that it came out a whole year, over a year before on the Xbox and Windows, Xbox 360 and Windows first before moving to the PS3. Yep. Now, what's the resonance with that? Is it, does this have a big following amongst X, you know, amongst the Xbox aficionados as it well? It did, but I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that PlayStation 3 wasn't doing very well. This might have been a promised ah. timed exclusive. And as everyone knows, cell processing on PlayStation 3 meant that por even porting games to PS3 was incredibly difficult. Okay. That's why PS3 is so full of exclusives that are really great and some great ports, but there's very few ports that play better on PS3 than Xbox 360. So I think that that probably has something to do with it. But I remember very clearly it coming to PlayStation 3 because a, a guy named Jeff Haynes that worked with us, we heard a rumor that at the end of the PS3 version of the game was a trailer for Bioshock 2, which had not been announced yet. It's true. It really is there. You had to beat the game first. So I remember him staying at the office all night to beat the game so we can get the trailer on the on the site as oh, soon as wow, possible. So that's, that's why I remember cool. about it coming to PS3. That's awesome. So, yeah, it came to PS3 later. I originally played it on 360, then played it on PS3, then played it on PS4. So... Dagan played it on PlayStation 3. I did. Totally legitimate place to play it. It's totally fine on PS3. I don't think anyone has any problems with it. It actually has the most problems on PS4. Dagan, we have a couple. We have actually a lot of comments from the audience. I, I was figuring that. I can't wait. So Ethan wrote into us. And remember, you can write into us on Patreon as well. He says, I remember I was in fifth grade when Bioshock came out. It's unbelievable. Oh, my goodness. I rented it with a friend having no idea what it was. I started playing and was completely captured by it. My friend actually ended up getting kind of scared when we got to the Steinman part, which is early in the game, mm -hmm. and said he wanted to go play outside. I straight up told him that he needed to leave because I wasn't going to stop playing. We're not friends anymore. That's scary for fifth grader. To this day, Bioshock is one of, if not my favorite game of all time. I'll tell you right now, Chris Raygun, who is the co-host of Sacred Symbols, is was mortified of the game as well when it yeah, came out. Yeah, because he was young. Yeah, he wasn't in fifth grade, but he was probably, well, he might have been. This was 12 years ago, so he yeah. was 13. So yeah, not not in fifth grade, but you know maybe more in like ninth grade. But yeah, Ethan has that to say, but there's actually something, Dagan, okay. that I wanted to kind of segue into that someone had written into us. Where is it? Oh, here it is. James Kinsel III wrote into us, as he often does. Hey, says, James. Bioshock, along with Dead Space, were the two main reasons that I wanted to buy a PlayStation 3 back in 2008, and I finally did with my tax money in 2009. Dead Space is another great game. We'll do a, an episode of that We're doing sure. that one. Bioshock, had, by the way, it's weird that EA has not even released a collection of Dead Space games for the new consoles. They haven't? No, it's very weird. That is strange. That studio doesn't exist anymore. Visceral, of course, was shut down. But visceral. it doesn't matter because they can get any... Blind Squirrel is the one who ported Bioshock, of course, to PlayStation 4. Hmm. Bioshock has such a rich story and atmosphere and Rapture is incredible. Getting down to Rapture and only having a wrench to bludgeon your enemies with made the game so much more intense between Bioshock and Dead Space. The loss of my PlayStation virginity was quite horrifying in the best way possible. <laughs> now, boys, would you kindly pass the plasmids? Because I have an insect swarm. To send oh, you our way. There you go. Well and done. finally, for now, Tanner Brandt wrote into us and said at the time it came out, it was a revolutionary game with how the story was told and the plasmids. I'm curious what Dagan thinks of the game since he never played it until now. Does it hold up for someone that is playing it for the first time? 
all these years later. Dagan, what did you think where of I Bioshock? I mean, where do I start? I mean, first of all, just as a video gamer and somebody who doesn't get a chance to play contemporary games. Now, of course, this game's going back a little bit, but I consider it a more contemporary game because I'm such a retro gaming head. But just knowing in circles how highly this game is held up and that's considered one of the best games of all time. Not only that, but it's one of Colin's favorite games of all time, and I've always known that. So it had a lot of hype coming in for me, and I was expecting great things because I think Colin has great taste in games, of course. But where do I even start with this game? I mean, there's so many things you could say about it. First of all, I have to temper it by saying that I can't even remember, Kyle, the last time I played a first-person shooter. Now, this is a very unconventional... I would consider this a very unconventional first-person shooter. Yeah, it's a first-person game with shooting mechanics. Exactly. It's not not Call of Duty or something. Right, exactly. Very inventive. And probably... That is probably the last time I played first-person shooter games was, you know, the Call of Duty, various Call of Duty and SOCOM games. So I was coming into this, you know, from a mechanical point of view, we were talking about earlier with the controls and everything, a little foreign to me. But I loved it and appreciated its inventiveness from the very beginning. Now, I think I could divide it into three things. The, The inventiveness of the gameplay, the setting, which is unbelievably inventive. I mean, you take sort of a high, really what I would consider almost a, a cyberpunkish setting, but I know that Ken Levine and his people didn't really want to do a cyberpunk thing, thinking it was a little hackneyed and getting a little played out and everything like that. So they kind of came up with this. Now, I don't know if they invented this biopunk genre, but certainly it was a formative thing in, in you know what was considered or what they were branding as biopunk. But... I loved the sort of art deco, but sort of decrepit art deco with the, you know, the water, the rust and the water filtering in and everything sort of was, you know, this in this state of like, you could tell it was a once gorgeous setting that's now decaying. And, you know, just the water seeping through the walls and the pools of water where they shouldn't be and the groaning and the creaking and the and the you know the bur- you know the busted pipes the you know visually it creates such a visceral setting you know the setting is so magnetic and so different and then you know i think one of the first things i was struck by that i was telling my wife was like this game is unbelievable because on one hand you have these conventional weapons like guns and wrenches and crossbows and and so shotguns and so on and so forth but you have this mechanic of literally injecting yourself with this with these with these chemicals that give you these powers and just the fact of plunging the needle in your arm and then having that plasmid power wherever it was whichever one it was was just staggering to me and as hard as scary as the game is i almost got a joy from it because it was so different i couldn't believe how different it was and then i kept examining now i'm looking at it from a 2019 perspective now i'm trying to examine it from the time it came out you know 2007 slash 2008 i mean this game was so far ahead of its time and so different and i also loved Cobb. before i forget to say I'm a very, you know how I am with games, and I think you're the same way. I like to play a game in a very deliberate way. Oh, definitely. This game must be played that way. And I can't see playing it any other way. Like, when I play a game, I love to play games really, how do I say it? I I love to play games, like, at a thoughtful and deliberate pace. I like to explore. I like to scour every square inch of the environment. I like to make sure I didn't miss anything. And for combat, I don't like to rush in. I'm not the type of guy that, like, 
you know, rushes into the room, take a ton of damage, you know, sort of spam and, you know, use, you know, three first aid kits and just make it out of the room alive. I like to go in thoughtfully. I like to find a good vantage point for attack. I like to use a little strategy. I like to make sure all my weapons are loaded. I like to make sure I'm on the right ammunition. You know, this game has all that. You could play that way. You know, you could you could kind of intro, you know, you could kind of take advantage of the stealth mechanics in this game. You could kind of play at your own pace. And that's what spoke to me about the game from a very from very early on. I could play it the way I wanted to play it. And then the level, you know, which we'll talk about, the level of depth. You know, the level of depth in the game, it's not just fighting. There's uh, there's puzzle elements. There's, you know, quote, you know, quote unquote RPG elements. There's so this game offers so much. It lived up, you know, that's where I went in. Like, what's my barometer going to look like when I get a couple hours into this game? Is it going to live up to all the hype or am I going to be disappointed or am I going to write all those things that I'm calling into question that aren't so great? There was very few things that I found annoying or problematic with the game. It was very, very enjoyable experience for me. And I think I spent way, like if I look at a playthrough online, I looked at a couple of playthroughs and where they were two hours in, I was probably there like at that same spot, like six or seven hours in. I was playing very deliberately. I was trying to hack every robot, every vending machine. I was really trying to scour this the environments for every first aid kit, you know, trying not to overuse my ammo. And, you know, from, from A to Z, I was just enamored with it, and I understand the hype. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. I've been really excited to talk to you about it. I've been kind of restraining myself a little bit <laughs> from talking to you about it because it's a game that I really, really enjoy from so many levels and it was amazing going back. I had remarked about it on Twitter actually recently. It was my 80th platinum trophy. It's also a platinum trophy. I got a long time Holy ago on cow. PlayStation three. And so I did it all again. And to do that, you have to play on the hardest difficulty level with no Vita chambers. And so you basically can't die and you have to just, you know, play the game and you can save whenever you want. So it's not a huge deal. It's not really that hard. It just takes, it's very methodical. Like you said, and I like playing the game that way as well. The reason why the game is so important to play methodically is because nothing is the same. There's not like, you know, just a room with weapons in it or something like everything is there with purpose. This game is probably the most deliberately designed game I've ever played in my life. I can't even believe when you read about the stories about how this game was not being well received by playtesters, that they were incredibly worried that it wasn't going to do well, that from the right when it was being re-released, they didn't believe that anyone was going to care about the game. People didn't understand it, that what were playing it. What was their it. problem with it? People didn't, under, people didn't understand the mechanics. They thought it was really dark. They like It's why playtesting, when you talk about playtesting, a lot of it you have to go into and, and really take on board what people are saying. They don't understand how to fucking play the game. They, you know, These are things that are relevant, but at the same time, you almost have to go with your gut. You read about Bioshock's development, you'll realize that it was a kind of a mixture of two, that there were people at Irrational that were like, we really need to listen to what these people are saying. They did go back and change a lot of things, and they did go back and clear things up a little bit and make the controls a little more coherent, brighten it up a little bit. But regardless of all that, it's the game's story that is incredibly unique. Yes. And when you combine it with Rapture, which is an incredibly unique setting, and again, going back and playing it, as I remarked on Twitter, it just feels good. Like... I usually have to calibrate my controls. First of all, I play inverted, so I have to always go into the controls and play that way. You know, I invert Y, so when I look down, I look up and vice versa. That's the way I play. Okay. About 10% of gamers play that way, but I get made fun of it for a lot. But sensitivity-wise, I usually drove drive sensitivity in shooters way down. I hate jarring movements on sticks. Bioshock is one of those games that doesn't need to be tweaked. It feels perfect the way it is. Like, you don't have to tweak anything. I wish you can button map in the game a little bit more. It's weird to jump with triangle. It's weird 
to aim with the stick, which is, you know, to click the stick on R3, which is a little strange. That's very old. Yeah. Halo used to do that. Resistance used to do that. I mean, it's not like this is the only game, but we we aim with the triggers now. So there are little weird wrinkles like that that aren't fixed or sure, can't be sure. fixed. But it's so deep and so highbrow. And I don't mean that from a perspective of like, I like this game because I'm so highbrow. It is a legit highbrow game. And, I, and I, from every perspective, it, it requires you to understand politically it's what it's saying. It requires you to have a familiarity, frankly, with objectivism and with Ayn Rand. Yeah. It, it requires you to understand all these different things and the shade. I mean, it, and, it, and it wears it on its sleeve. The you know, one of the main characters name is Atlas. Yeah. Andrew Ryan is one of the main characters, which is a play on Ayn Rand. It's not like it's really trying to be secretive about it. It's right. The whole intro video, which I absolutely love when you're going in the bathosphere for the first time. And it's Andrew Ryan introducing you to his, you know, you know, no, says the man in the Vatican and all that kind of stuff. And then it shows you rapture, like the city itself. with the fish. It's it's great. This isn't your run of the mill game. And I, I, I what I love about it and what I love about its status let's say in gaming is that it shows that a lot of video gamers are sophisticated and a lot of people do want this kind of stuff and that this level of storytelling in games and environmental storytelling and the little touches the audio and like you were saying like hearing just hearing in the distance the groan of a big daddy oh that guy somewhere groan you know or hearing hey mr bubbles and you're like (laughs) Like, like, where is she? You know, like, even though you know that it's it's a deeply unsettling, deeply scary game. And at the end of the day, it's about a few things. It's about the decay of a libertarian society built on objectivism. And we can talk about that. We will talk about that because the politics are so deep. And a lot of people think I'm an objectivist. I'm not. I I love Ayn Rand, but I'm not an objectivist. I, I don't I don't think it works. But the other thing, it's about a few other things. It's about class warfare. Sure. That's a big part of it. And it's about drug addiction and it's about like autarky which and and for people that don't know to be autarky a-u-t-a-r-k-y which means that you're self-sufficient that you don't need to trade with others that you don't need to have like any contact with the outside world that was all about you know isolationism it's isolationist and so i want to i don't know even where to begin because there's so much to kind of get through it's very layered i mean you said it sophisticated is the perfect way to put it it really is in, in every way, but especially with the story and especially in the, ref, you know, the politics it references. So let me explain the story and then we can go from there. Absolutely, OK, absolutely. So the game takes place in 1960. You play a character named Jack. And in the beginning of the game, Jack is on a plane. The plane crashes in front of this like beacon lighthouse in the Atlantic Ocean, the North Atlantic Ocean. And he, and he swims to this lighthouse that brings him to a bathosphere that subdue, you know, submerges him and brings him to Rapture. Rapture is an underwater city that was created probably 10, 12 years earlier by a guy named Andrew Ryan, who's a business magnate, who's very much like your reared in, in Atlas Shrugged, a, a guy who doesn't believe in the government, who thinks that the government gets in the way of great men and great thinkers. And he wants to create a place where everyone can go. This is very much like Atlas Shrugged. This is exactly like what happened with John Galt and all that kind of stuff in Atlas Shrugged. So, philosophy. so there's a familiarity that's required, I think, with that to really get all of it out. And as this place develops, there ends up being haves and have nots. And the talented people in the city 
keep acquiring money and power and leaving other people on the outskirts of their society. And if you read more about the stories and you play the future games and all that, you realize that, you know, the assumption was that these workers would just find their way. They obviously brought a bunch of people down to build Rapture and then these people were kind of left without anything. And this class conflict is taken advantage of by a guy named Frank Fontaine. And Frank Fontaine is another businessman of success and of repute in Rapture. And Frank Fontaine makes his money by secretly smuggling things in and out of Rapture to the surface. So he's very well known with the underclass. He employs a lot of the underclass and a lot of people's goods with a wink and a nod are brought from the, uh, you know, from the top side and brought down, even though Andrew Ryan has kind of forbade that. Yes. That rapture is supposed to exist again and as an autarky. It's supposed to be left alone. Right. Defying that. The side to this is the drug addiction going on in the city because of the discovery of this strange substance called Adam. And Adam is a genetic and DNA altering thing that allows people to do all sorts of things. It can make you faster. It can make you more handsome. It could also give you fire powers. It could also make you invincible. It could also do all sorts of things. And what they realized was that the more people were taking this stuff, the more they were getting addicted to it and needed it until they went overboard and became what they called splicers, which were basically irredeemable drug addicts that were nuts. And Frank Fontaine, to make a long story short, uses the kind of splicers and the lower class to create strife in two different times. And the second time it creates a civil war on New Year's Eve, 1958, the entire city starts fighting and you enter about two years later and see what, and to see what happens. That's how the game begins. Exactly. You know, so you're getting there. It's all over. The civil war is over. Almost everyone's dead or has turned into splicers. It's up to you to figure out what's going on there. And when you land in the bathosphere in the first part of the game, which is the medical pavilion, you are being guided via radio by a man named Atlas. Atlas ends up being Frank Fontaine. And spoiler alert, spoiler alert. (laughs) Frank Fontaine is presumed dead in a firefight with Andrew Ryan and his security people led by this guy named Sullivan, but he's not dead. And you're basically being manipulated. It's an entire thing. It's an entire thing and a really incredibly special game from that regard. And what's brilliant about it, Dagan, is that it creates gameplay opportunities with its story, which is not all that common. It's easy to have diaries or journal entries and people talking to you on the radio. Lots of games do that. And one of the major criticisms of Bioshock is that the game's story is only told in audio diaries. So you, re- if you just played the game, you wouldn't get anything out of it. Like the, you wouldn't, you would guess, I guess, some environmental storytelling, but you wouldn't really know what happened. Right. And like what's going on there and that the scientists have found this weird sea slug and that they're using little girls to harvest Adam and create, basically take these like underclass people and fuse them to diving suits and make them protect these little girls and stuff. It's an incredibly fucked up story. It's crazy deep. So I love it. It's so good. I, I just absolutely adore it. So you had talked about. And I guess a great place to begin, Dagan, is you had discussed using plasmids, and that's a major component of it. There are also tonics that you yeah. can use that give you like more permanent upgrades and stuff like that. But how did you balance your use of plasmids with, you, with the use of the conventional weapons that you get in the game? Like you said, you get kind of a Tommy gun, you get a, a revolver, you have a wrench, which is your melee weapon. Right. You only have a few things to choose from. You have a bow and, or a crossbow, like you said, which is not very useful. No. But what? how did you balance it? I felt like I was using them in tandem from a very from very early on. And why 
Well, first of all, it took me a little while, you know, I'm a little embarrassed to admit, but it took me a little while to figure out, first of all, with the splicers, who are the more common enemy, the most numerous of enemies in the game, that dealing with the splicers really was contingent on how they were armed. If they were armed with a melee weapon, a projectile weapon, or if they had plasmid powers themselves. And I wasn't getting that at first because I was going after, you know, I would just rush in. And once I was all equipped and ready for battle, I would go in and face a splicer with a with the wrench, for instance, not really paying attention to the fact that they were armed with a gun. And they were just trying to distance themselves from me in order to take a shot at me. So once I dialed in, first of all, I had much more success once I figured out that I had to cater my attack to how the enemy was equipped was actually really fun because that was the first thing I always tried to analyze and of course later on we'll get into the research camera and using that and everything like that but um, that was number one but I always found it very helpful to you know go in and use a plasmid especially early on because you have the first ones you have I believe are electro bolt and incinerate and they're two projectile attacks you know one firing electricity and one firing fire so I found it easy to go in and use those, you know, line up a shot and take enemies out from a distance where I could. And I felt that was a little more reliable than using the conventional projectile weapon, you know, guns and such, you know, the pistol and the shotgun, especially initially and the Tommy and the machine gun you get early on. But also Kyle, I wanted to ask you, but then fighting the big brothers, big daddies, the big daddy, sorry, the big daddies. And, you know what, which is actually was actually pretty far into the game for me because I was going so slow. By the time I got to that point, I really tried had to try to figure out how to beat them in the best possible way because they're tough. They take a lot of hits, and you have to kind of formulate an attack based on you know the big daddies and trying to take them out quickly. And of course, they run. That was one of the things that I was telling you earlier that I was really horrified with and shocked with and delighted by was how fast the big daddies are. They're so quick. And once you, you know, again, you also, you said, um, we were talking about a little earlier, they won't initiate combat with you until you start it. They won't enter into combat with you until you start it. So you could just be walking around the same level with them, literally walking into them. They won't pay attention to you until you attack. So it was all about trying to mix it up between the plasmids trying to mix it up between the plasmids and the conventional weapons and just trying to figure out what the game wanted me to do. You know, what the game was sort of angling towards. Did the game, you know, you get more conventional weapons quicker than you get the plasmids. The plasmids kind of come a little heavier towards the, I would say the second third to the middle of the game. So, you know, where they start to become hot and heavy and you have a, you have much more of a variety at your disposal. But I wanted to ask you, Kyle, before I forget, what how what was your what was your strategy for for dealing with the the big daddies? What was your? It's tough. I mean, it depends. Like there are certain parts of the game that you can kind of manipulate them. Okay. Like there's, I don't know if it's in the medical pavilion or something. There's a place where you can kind of hide. That's the and first time you fight. Them, yeah, like the the entire thing. I've played the game now through three or four times, and it's always daunting. Like I don't want to fight them. Right. Like you really have to because you need Adam from them and, and Adam is how you get plasmids. Right. It's kind of a currency. And that's another clever thing that the game does is it has like multiple forms of currency, which I always love in a game. It's a, it's a very tight economy, which is important, which is super important. It is. And it's criticized for that sometimes as far as what I read yeah. and hear. But I like that because it makes you make thoughtful decisions. It doesn't affect the gameplay. You could still have fun 
But you can't be, you know, you can't just be wild and fancy free. No. You have to pay attention. Right, exactly. You can't spend too much money and you can't, you know, you can't get everything with your Adam. Even if you, you know, did you save this Little Sisters or did you? I was just going to ask you the same thing. I always save them. I don't think I had to save. Yeah, I I never because you get different endings depending on what you do. And And there's only two endings. There's only two. And you and you also maximize the amount of Adam you get only by saving them because Tenenbaum gives you bonuses for every three that you get. So exactly. you actually maximize it. The game makes it seem like you get more Adam from killing them or harvesting them as they call it. But you don't. You actually, if you play the long game and save them, you get a better ending and you end up getting more Adam, which is good. So but, it's harvest versus rescue. Yeah. You always rescued. Them. Yeah, always. Yeah. I don't think I've ever harvested any of them in any of my playthroughs. But I have watched the other ending because the other ending is weird. The good ending is considered canon, by the way, in case anyone's curious. Oh, is that right? Yes. Good ending's so cool. Yeah, it's good. It's so cool. So with the big daddies, it's all about, like I said, being deliberate. I, it, there's a feeling in me of being like, all right, we're going to do this. So I try to lure them in the places where there are cameras and where there are turrets. They're going to destroy the turrets and the cameras quickly, but they distract the shit out of them to the extent where you can. they do a little bit of damage and you can start wailing on them. Now, I like using proximity mines on them. And I, you know, as far as plasmids are concerned, I really, to be perfectly honest with you, get through the entire game only using Electro Bowl, pretty much. I, I don't almost use any of the other ones. It's very effective. Because it freezes everyone, especially when you start leveling it up or yeah. getting the better versions of it. Now, there are only two plasmids in the game I think you have to use. You have to use Incinerate and you have to use Electro Bolt. Other because you have to use Electro Bolt to open locked doors and you have to use Incinerate to melt ice. Right. I think that those are the only two you have to use. Do you have to use the telekinesis power oh to yes, yes, yes. Gr- to throw grenades back. yeah you that's right you also have to use telekinesis to throw okay. grenades and to destroy that barrier early right. in the game right right so that's right. true as well. right right that's right. and telekinesis is useful too if they're if i'm if it's i'm fighting fun. the nitro splicers and stuff i actually do use telekinesis and just throw their bombs oh back dude up. it's so fun when they first when i first got that plasma and they were explaining i was like what that's gonna be weird it the mechanics of that it feels and the physics feels so good i actually like how they teach you how to use it too because that you're in that sports shop and there's a tennis ball machine that's right and you can use it to like catch them and throw oh them my back, god which is cool. it's so it's very it's clever so great dude so i always stuck with you know i i was i played the game very similarly you know you want to use different rounds on the big daddies you want to you know you save your anti-personnel rounds for instance for splicers you use your anti-armor rounds to do a lot of damage to the big daddies it's also cool that there are different types of big daddies yes you know you have your rosies for instance and so you know it's always like especially because i play it on very hard it's always a thing where it's like you got to be ready to go you know like you have to just totally be ready to go and then it's on you know and then and then it's on and it's not going to be over until you until one of you are dead you know now they'll follow you around the the entire map the enemy ai yeah to me now i don't want to speak out of turn because i haven't played too many games like this Seems pretty tight. It's very tight. They seem pretty smart. Yeah, not only the big daddies, but the splicers are smart too. They are. The spider splicers on the ceilings and the nitro splicers kind of pursuing you with their bombs and staying out of their own explosive, you know, out of their own way. Yeah. There's a lot of cleverness in the way the AI is programmed because it's it's scary too. You know what's cool about the splicers too, Dagan, and what's so cool about the moments in the game? They kind of diminish towards the end. You can tell that they were much more interested in doing this towards the beginning in production. But like just running into them in different ways. Like you run into a splicer kind of looking into a baby carriage with the baby carriage has like a pistol oh in it. Oh my God. You like, there's all sorts of really weird stuff. And the, the, that was the way the splicers talk to each other and just talk yes. is super weird, like oh, super unsettling. They're always saying things, you know, like del- they're delusional. They're crazy. It's really, 
I don't know, man. I, I just I'm so enamored with just every aspect of the game. It's unsettling because it's not a game. There are so many games that people criticize, like Heavy Rain's a great example. Like Heavy Rain on PlayStation 3 has got a great story. It's not great to play. It's just like you kind of deal with it in order to see what it is. But it's a mixture of both play and storytelling. And, and, and there's very few games that do it like this. That's why I brought up The Last of Us and a few others because there are just not many games that are both incredibly playable and incredibly fascinating from a plot point where you know that they put a lot of thought into the storyline. There are very few plot holes. The voice acting is incredible, you know, and that's another thing that I really take away from it too, is that we have such different expectations today, rightfully so about production values, but the production value in Bioshock is through the roof. Oh, it's so good. You know, it's not that the game can't look better because of course it can. To see Bioshock recreated with today's technology or PS5 technology is going to be incredible. I'm sure that they'll, they're going to do that at some point, not Ken Levine, but I'm sure 2K owns the game. So I'm sure that they're going to do it. Yeah. But it's more like it doesn't have to be done. This is a game that actually doesn't need to be touched. It just doesn't. And I don't know, man. Yeah, uh, it's, st- it's still look how look how well it holds up. I mean, and, you know, I was also really it was really striking for me to read too, Kyle, that I didn't realize this game was really a front runner in the games as art, you know, argument. This is this game is a work of art, you know, and it really, really is. And you talk about striking imagery. I just have to give a shout out. There's so much striking imagery in the game from the character design to the environments and how inventive and different and unique everything is. But I don't think anything could be cooler than the big daddy little sister you know you have the big daddy in this hulking you know old-fashioned diving suit that's tremendous with this little girl in like a you know a little tea dress who's like sweet and innocent and she's sort of acting like a little kid and she's really not you know what I mean but you have that imagery and that visual contrast I mean it's so striking and so unsettling and what you said about the splicers just hearing them talk First of all, the audio component to this game is so important for the atmosphere. It is. It is. And I play a lot of games, as people know, if I'm playing like a throwaway, not a throwaway shooter, but if I'm playing like a shooter like Borderlands or something like that or Far Cry, I don't even listen to the audio. I listen to like podcasts and stuff like that. Oh, that's interesting. Unless there's like a a story thing that I need to listen to that I'll mute it or whatever. But Bioshock, I would never play Bioshock. You can't do like this game. You won't get the full full experience. No, because I'm not playing. Like I play Far Cry because I like taking things over and shooting things and blowing things up and stuff like that. And I don't need to hear any of it. And it's so unpredictable, Kyle. You You know, like sometimes the Spicers will be going off and sort of raging about something. And they sort of seem really aggressive. And sometimes, like you said, they're kind of delusional and kind of saying something sweet. And, you know, that contrast of like, you know, you have this oftentimes bloody environment, there's blood splattered on the walls. You're walking in, you know, onto the teeth. And, you know, here's your enemy around the corner. You hear them saying something super sweet. You know what I mean? It's like that contrast, you know, that unpredictability of what you're going to get into next is just... I don't remember experiencing a game ever like this or, you know, having a gaming experience like this, maybe ever, you know, it was really, really heavy, super, super memorable. Well, let's flesh it out a little bit more with the readers, as we like to call them, even though you're listening. Matt Wu wrote into us and he said, in my opinion, Rapture is the pinnacle of environmental storytelling from the glass hallways that constantly remind you of the crushing weight of the ocean. It's brilliant use of light and shadows. And of course, the Art Deco Roaring Twenties motif. I'd argue that Rapture is one of the best video game characters created. What do you guys think of Rapture? Does any game or he says, do you think any game has surpassed its greatness or do you foresee anything in the near future topping it? I think Pound for Pound Rapture is the best setting in a video game. That was very well said. It is. It is a great character. And... It's a character. 
I don't want to spoil it too much, but I mean, these shows are inherently spoilers, but I was telling Dagan before that Bioshock Infinite's DLC in 2013, 2014 shows Rapture before the Civil War. And that's when I really think that you see what it's supposed to be. And it's amazing. Like seeing it in its decrepit state and Bioshock 2, it's even worse because Bioshock 2 takes place years later and it's an even horrible shape at that point, which is very cool. That's so cool. But and Bioshock Infinite doesn't take place on Rapture at all, but okay. Bioshock Infinite takes place in Columbia, which is like a floating city where, oh, they, where they worship the founding fathers, which is super cool. That's pretty cool. Uh, so I think you'll really like that one as well. That sounds cool. But to me, I and it all wraps together, by the way. So they're all which I didn't know until you play the DLC, which is very, it's quite interesting. But Rapture is I can't think of many better settings. Now, he had brought up or not Matt didn't, but someone else had brought up you know, Dead Space earlier. And I think that the mm. Ishimura, which is where, which is the spaceship that Dead Space takes place on is another amazing setting. The mansions in Resident Evil are amazing settings. Sure. So it's not to say that this is exclusively this, but anything self-contained, the castle in Symphony of the Night, but anything self-contained automatically and that I have to retread and you don't know what you're going to find when you go back to places, which is something Bioshock does awesome. It, it, it lulls you into a false sense of security because you're like, I've been here before, but now raptures are gathered around or uh, now splicers are gathered around a dead body and, and you know, you have to deal with a new, whole new crop it of changes. them. It's beautiful and it invokes, rapture invokes in me just this awe that I'm like, I don't know how you even come up with something like this. This is brilliant. Not only the idea of putting a city underwater. I mean, that's cool. Not unheard of. No, it's the way the city looks. It's the way the city sustains itself. And it's the way that they have thought about everything. You know, like one of the characters that you meet in the audio diaries is one of the maintenance guys who is talking about how hard it is for Rapture to like even exist and how they're always dealing with shit. And like, it's always leaking and yeah. You know, it's under this immense crushing, literally crushing pressure of the water. And so I don't know, man, I look at Rapture as something truly special. And I don't know that Bioshock would be anywhere near as good if it took place anywhere else. And we saw that with Bioshock Infinite, which I I think Columbia is an amazing. Columbia is so different because Columbia is green and blue and it's outside and the skies are blue and it's wide open. And so it has a totally different feel. But it's the self-contained nature and the claustrophobia mm, and the knowledge point. that you're always being watched in some way, whether by Andrew Ryan, whether by Atlas slash Frank Fontaine, Tenenbaum, whoever's trying to contact you. Right. It's pretty cool. Oh, it's it's. Uh, yeah. I mean, the first I mean, probably an hour into the game, I thought my first thought with the setting was, oh, this is like the Shining Hotel damaged and, you know, partially submerged, you know, partially damaged by water. So almost like that beautiful, once beautiful hotel setting that's being, you know, that's being destroyed by the water and the water is coming in unwanted. And I just love the water element, like the art deco architecture mixed with the intruding water. There's just something about that. That's just, again, like you said, it's foreboding because you think like this water could come streaming in here at any second. You know, you think of like pressure and bursting pipes and you know, pounds and pounds and tons and tons of pressure and glass and metal. And, you know, it just seems dangerous, you know, and it's and I love the claustrophobia element. That was really well said, too. Yeah, it's, it's something that actually the second game deals with a little bit because there's a psychiatrist. I think she has she in the first one, too. I don't think so. Sophia Lamb. They bring her down because people are, you know, Ryan Andrew Ryan hires her because people are like losing their minds. Wow. Th- this is before the Civil War because they can't go anywhere. It's they like had, being in a submarine. Right. Exa- exactly. Right. And. It's like something that they didn't anticipate, which is interesting, but you're right. There's something, you know, you know, one of the things I love, they do it a few times in the game is when you're in parallel 
glass tubes going from places and you can just look and there's like a big daddy and a little sister like harvesting a body yeah or they're like splicers just walking that you have to deal with later there's a lot of cool elements like that some of them are moments that are scripted some of them aren't some of them are literally things that are happening concurrent to where you are it makes the place feel alive in other words it doesn't make it feel like a lot of video games do to this day where everything turns on when you're there right it plots right like it feels like there's just shit going on great point you know which is which is something that i really love a lot about it Andrew Hess wrote into us on Patreon. So, hey, guys, loving the show. Your nostalgia gets me through my long commutes. I'm glad to hear that, Andrew. Thank Definitely. you. Definitely. I can relate. Bioshock was my favorite game of the 360 and PS3 era. I can remember my at-the-time girlfriend watching me play and getting so scared she would make me turn it off or just leave the room. I never considered it, but Bioshock dips its toes into many genres. What genre do you consider Bioshock to be primarily? It is easily my favorite horror game of all time. You know, I don't know that it's a horror game. I know that some people look at it that way. I think there's a difference between horror and being scared of mm. something. I think mm. Resident Evil is a horror game. It's about zombies. And yeah. Now, splicers are out of their minds. They could be zombies, I guess. But I think the game's just scary. And okay. I think that that's different. And I think that that makes the game even cooler. It is scary. You know, like the game's just, it's just unsettling. Like there's a scene where right where you get the shotgun where the lights just turn off. And then all of the splicers appear and you have to like blast them all away. Horrifying. You know, like there's stuff like that. that I was horrified at that part. You know, when you meet Dr. Steinman or you meet Sandra Cohen or like it's scary. It's not I I don't know if it makes sense what I'm saying, but it's not horror in my from my perspective. It's it's gory and bloody, but it's just it's just just violent. It's just unsettling. It's scary. Now, what genres do I consider it? I, I think it's a first person shooter from a certain perspective. Yeah. Infinite's much more of a shooter than this is, which is one of the things that I didn't like about it initially. There's not that much combat pound for pound in Bioshock, which I think is one of the things that makes it special. You're not dealing with tons and tons of enemies. There's a fight. You can probably count the amount. Ma- the ma- I mean, if you took the time, you probably count the amount of splices you actually fight. Yeah. It's probably, you know, I don't know how many, 150 maybe. It's not yeah, that many. Yeah, that's reasonable. Yeah. Maybe not even that many. And so... I look at it from one perspective as being a first person shooter. It's also just kind of an action game. It's kind of a Metroidvania. And, you know, it, it, it's also its own unique thing. The reason that Bioshock is so special, I think, to a lot of people, including me and I think to you, is because there aren't many analogs to it. Like, no, it, there's nothing I can point to. Dead Space is an interesting analog, but I think Dead Space is an analog to Resident Evil. There's nothing really like this. Maybe Dishonored is kind of like this. Okay. You know, obviously, this game comes from System Shock, Looking Glass's System Shock series. You know, Ken Levine famously and his earlier Rational Studio worked on that. But you have any experience? No, I've never played those games. Now, Chris Raygun, the guy who I do Sacred Symbols with, loves those games. I've never played them. Now, apparently, there's a ton of shit in Bioshock that comes from those games. Yeah, I can't speak to those. Okay, because I've not played them. They're PC. They've never ported them to the new to the console. That's interesting. I'm not gonna play them on PC. So what, what would you consider it as far as genres? Yeah, do you, do really, you agree with Andrew that it's a horror game? I do partially think it's a horror game. I, I think because and I think a large part of that is because so many of the settings, you know, have that sort of blood and gore element, whether it's blood spattered on the wall or, a, you know, a cadaver with the with the scalpel in its eye and, you know, the partially partially submerged morgue and all that kind of stuff. I I think it's horrific. I think, but I think it is hard to, I think it's a great question because I think it is hard to pinpoint to one genre because it is so unique. You know, I agree with you on that. And I I think it is a, I would call it a first person shooter, but I haven't played that many first person shooters as of late over the last 10 years. So I know even in thinking of other first person shooters that I haven't yet experienced, it's not really, it's not really a quote unquote, you know. 
conventional first person right. shooter. But I think it is I think it is horrific. I, I I would call it sort of a hybrid between a horror game and a first person shooter. I don't you know, and I, I think it does have Metroidvania elements as well. You know, I think that's really well said. I think it's really hard to pinpoint. I think that's what makes it get, you know, and sort of put it in a box. It's very difficult to put this game in a box. And I think that's what makes it so special. Absolutely. Now, let's talk a little bit about the politics in the game, because the the political message in the game is interesting. I don't know that they're really trying to say anything, but you can be the judge of that. I guess Travis Smith wrote into us and said, hey, Colin and Dagan, Bioshock is my all time favorite game. I was obsessed with it in 07. And when the remaster came out, I stopped everything to get platinums in all three games. Wow. But for me, this game was the beginning. I did the same thing, by the way. You but did? the beginning was the, I have. Yeah, I platinumed Bioshock 2 and Infinite as well. But for me, this game was the beginning of a fascination with utopias and Ryan's take on society. Hearing Ken Levine say the game was loosely based off of Ayn Rand's Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged uh, convinced me, I'm sorry, to read these monsters of books. They were both amazing reads, but the cool part was connecting the subtle references he hid in the game from those stories. I like to believe Andrew Ryan is John Galt with a whole lot of crazy added in. That could be Travis, but Connor Peterman then wrote in and said, Bioshock 1 for me had a good critique of capitalism that didn't come off as preachy. Are there any other video games you have played that offer an equally engaging political message? Mm. What did you make of the overtly political messaging in the game? I said a little bit earlier that I don't think it's trying to say anything. And what, what I mean by that is that I don't know that it's necessarily a message about all libertarianism or the fact. I mean, if you, uh, you know, Ken, I consider Ken Levine and I acquaintances. I've talked to Ken Levine before. I've had yeah, great conversations with him. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because he doesn't strike me as a very liberal person. He was inspired by Ayn Rand because he read those books. And I think that for those of us that like Ayn Rand, but don't really buy into objectivism completely, I think that this story makes sense because it's about the perils of going all in on an orthodox way of looking at things that you can't go all in like that on something. It just doesn't work. Right. So what do you make of that? I mean, what do you first of all, are you in Ayn Rand? Do you believe in objectivism? Do you what, what do you make of the libertarian philosophy that kind of portray, is portrayed by Andrew Ryan in this game and uh, by Rapture itself? You know, what's what's funny about a call. I'm not terribly schooled about Ayn Rand and all. All of that. But when I what I get from the game, when I come away from the game, I don't see it. You know, it, I feel like it puts out all of these ideas and it puts out all of these philosophies and tells us about it. But I don't feel like it comes down one way or another on a decision. I feel like it just paints a picture. I don't feel like it's preachy. I feel like it's just showing us a philosophy. It's showing us, you know, uh, you know, a way of thinking. And I always, it almost seems to me, and you may disagree, but it almost seems to me like in the end, when you come away, it kind of paints almost in in a sort of inevitability as far as, well, even this way doesn't protect us from those inevitable things like a class warfare, like a, like a, like a strife and a constant conflict between the haves and the have nots. These, I feel like it's almost saying like these things are always going to exist. It doesn't matter what the environment is. It doesn't matter what the idea was. It doesn't matter what the good intention was that these things are inherent. You know, I don't know if it's saying that, you know, these philosophies are inherent or bad people are an inherent part of life or that, you know, there's just no protection from it. There's always going to be a way. It's almost like trying to elude it's almost like I almost think of like a story of like trying to elude death. Like you're going to try to elude death, but you're going to end up pop, you're going to end up popping up right next to him. You know, it, it almost feels like that. It doesn't feel preachy to me, though. It just feels like it's painting a picture. And, you know, this world is so immersed in those philosophies. This is this is what came out of the this man's way of of thinking and how how far he took it 
And is it also is it also sort of telling us that it's dangerous to take things so far? You know, it's dangerous to take things to the upteenth level. Yes. I think that there's something to be said about the economic cautionary tale in the game that I think is probably lost on people that don't read about it or don't listen to all the audio diaries or haven't played it exhaustively like I have. The game's cautionary tale is not that Andrew Ryan created Rapture or wanted an autarky under the water. It's that he refused to bend when the conditions were begging him to change, change something. Evolve. Frank Fontaine gained all of the power. And by the time Andrew Ryan figured it out, it was too late. Andrew Ryan had a million different ways to regulate the atom market. He had a way to get Frank Fontaine. He had a way to, you know, to nationalize basically his company, which he eventually does. But by the time that happens in the in the story of the game, it's it's just too late. So it's not a message for me about that this is a totally bad idea. It's the, the I mean, I mean, it's a ridiculous idea going on. I mean, it's not possible, which is, you know, it, it's a video game. But <laughs> but beyond that, the message to me is to say, is really just saying, like, you got to be at least one of the messages is you got to be flexible. Like when people were warning him, when the doctors were warning him about what was going on with Adam, that people were getting addicted to it, that they couldn't create enough of it, that like the in a place where the you know, there's an audio diary where he talks about. It's awesome, actually, because it, it, it follows sequentially his thought process, Andrew Ryan's thought process. And originally, when people are being like, this is fucked up, what's going on here? He looks at it as others trying to stifle Fontaine's growth in the unbridled economy. And he says, make a better product. You know, that's like his an- his literal answer. His answer. He's like, just make a better product than the plasmids and the tonics and they will go out of business. What he didn't realize was that this was co- totally out of control, that people were becoming drug addled. There was a, a, viable, a, a viable and thriving black market with the surface. There was all of the shit going on under his nose that he didn't realize. And so that, to me, is really the message of the game, or at least one of the messages. It's not that libertarian societies can't exist. I mean, who knows if they can or they can't. We've never tried, I guess. But it's simply to say, and I wouldn't want to live in a society like that, just to be clear. But it's simply to say that, you know, he let his principles get the better of him. I mean, when you kill Andrew Ryan, he lets you do it because... Yeah. He's literally like a slave obeys. Like, will you will you do it? Because, That's a crazy you know, scene. it's an amazing scene because he knows that he didn't have to. That didn't have to happen to him. Like he, he's a man of absolute concrete principle. And it's what brought him down, you know, like like concrete shoes to the bottom of the ocean, just like Rapture is. Right. So, oh, wow. You know, so to me, I, I look I look at it through that lens that it's more complicated than just saying it's Randian or objectivist. I mean, for people that are not familiar with objectivism, objectivism is basically the I mean, it's a deep philosophy that you can read about. Again, I don't really buy into it, but it's really at the at its core, the idea of a selfish existence and not, you know, selfishness obviously has a negative connotation because we use it as being like you're not sharing your toys with me, you're selfish or whatever. The entire idea of selfishness is to say, like, you live for your own virtue. And Ayn Rand would argue that you don't donate your money to charity for the charity. You donate it because it makes you feel good. Okay. And and the only re- and that's fine. You do it because you can tell your friends that you donated. You do it because it's a status symbol. You're doing it for yourself. Right. Ultimately, it's for you. So our argument was always like, it's great to give to charity, but let's not pretend that you're giving the charity for them. You're doing it for you, you know? And I liked the, on. you know, I know that a lot of people think about it as, her arguments is underdeveloped, but they're still riveting to me today because it's, it is true. You know, like I like to help people to help people. Right. But certainly it doesn't hurt anyone. If people knew that you helped someone. Yeah. It's honest. You know what I mean? It's very honest. So 
that's I mean, objectivism goes deeper than that. Objectivism is really about, you know, that nothing exists for altruistic reasons, that no one's trying to make a dollar for an altruistic reason. No, If you read Atlas Shrugged, it's all about how the government got too big and bloated and started stymieing everyone's creativity. And so all the creative people left okay. society. OK. And that's what happens in Bioshock. They call it the vanishing. I don't think you learn that until Bioshock 2, but that happens in the world of Bioshock as well, where people, the talented, so-called talented magnets of industry and business and scientists and stuff all disappeared. That's oh, what that's happens. That's what happens in Atlas Shrugged. That's what Atlas Shrugged's about. You know, so it's not, you know, as someone said before, it's like loosely based around. No, it's not loosely based around Atlas Shrugged. It's completely based it's, around Atlas yeah, Shrugged. Yeah, it's totally. You know, Atlas, <laughs> the name, you know, name again, Atlas. Andrew Ryan instead of Ian Rand. <laughs> Which is pretty crazy, you know. Like it's not, it's not something that's just loosely based it's on. It's unbelievable. It's, that is what it's that is what it's based around. But I don't find the politics too heavy handed. And a lot of people, because I, I consider myself a conservative, oh, and I have libertarian leanings. I don't really have economic libertarian leanings, but I do have libertarian leanings in ter- terms of you know um, decriminalized drugs and you know kind of a loose market and all of those kinds of things. And p- a lot of people are surprised. They're like, it's kind of taking the piss out of your argument. And I'm like, but that's okay. I like. First of all, I'm not making this argument. Second of all, I like the game because it's an honest portrayal, like Dagan just said, yeah. of what could happen. It's a what if. It's a it's a speculative, you know, dystopia. Yeah. And I think it's incredibly special. And it's believe it's 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 a little unbelievable, but yet believable. And that's what, you know, that's what holds it in, you know, that's what makes it so memorable. Did you when you played it enjoy the audio diary aspect of it as much as I did. Like I love the audio diary. I stopped paying attention to it because I was pressed for time because I realized I was playing so slow. I mean, I, I was playing slow. I've been playing this game for a while and I was really trying to scour every inch and just trying to milk everything. You know, I didn't want to miss anything, you know, and I ended up, you know, looking at walkthroughs and looking at playthroughs just so I could kind of check myself. Because, which ended up actually spoiling components for me. I will say that this game would have horrified me if certain things weren't spoiled for me. Because I always played late at night. I think I always played after 11 o'clock. Sometimes I played to 11 till 4 in the morning, you know. And it was always just me and the dog downstairs. Everybody else was asleep. I played in the dark, you know. I'm I'm a scared individual. You yeah, know? you are I'm, a bit of a scared I'm not good with horror, you know. So... But I will say, yeah, I, I I really stopped paying attention to that element just because, I mean, I like that you could just kind of, you could kind of find it, listen to it and kind of do your thing while you were listening. So sometimes I tried to like hack a vending machine or hack a, you know, hack a, a gun turret or something while I was, but eventually I stopped, which means I stopped really, which you reminded me earlier, I stopped falling in line with the story. So now I want to go back and play again just so I could kind of glean all those story elements that I missed. Yeah, the game tells you, it, it, again, it's one of the frustrating things for people about the game is that you really have to sit and listen to these things. None of them are very long. They're all about 20 seconds long each, but there's 120 of them or so. Wow. And they're beautifully written. The voice acting is awesome. The characters, some of the characters you only meet through these through voice. That. And so you meet really fascinating characters. And I wanted to to bring a few of them up. I think I have them written here. One of them is uh, Yu Shushang, who's the scientist who is like responsible for a lot of the fucked up things that are happening down there. He's interesting because he talks about himself in first person and, uh, or I'm sorry, in third person. And he, he's one of the unsettling characters you wish you can meet. And one of the cool things about the game is that towards the end of it, you go to where all the rich people live in Point Prometheus and Apollo Square. And, I loved that because you really did see how the other side lives. So cool. But I want to talk a little bit about some of the characters we do meet, Dagan. 
What did you think of some of these guys? So okay. you meet the mad Dr. J.S. Steinman first. Yes. Now, Steinman is a doctor of renown, and he becomes obsessed with, like, if you listen to the audio diaries in his area, it's all about, like, why do you have to have two eyes? Why do you have to have two arms? Right. Why? Like, he becomes insane about splicing I people together. That. And yeah. I loved that. So what did you like J.S. Steinman? Did he stick sort out to that, you? Yeah, sort of the way, exactly what you said, sort of that thinking outside the box philosophy on, you know, you know, the human aesthetic. It was creepy as shit. And that, you know, and tracking him down and eventually fighting him was also a really memorable battle in the game. One of the first ones. It's the first it's the first boss. Like there are a the few first boss, boss battles. Yeah, yeah. 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 He's so, basically a nitro splicer. Uh, a few of them are, but uh, like bomb throwing guys. But yeah, he's like the first boss. you. you yeah, he's meet. operating first and then he notices you when mm-hmm. he comes out. Yeah, he's like stabbing the yes, body. Yeah. It's like really as he's getting, fr- you know, yeah. you know, telling us his mantra, yelling his mantra. Which is really cool. Yeah, that was really, really memorable. Uh, that was a really memorable character. And then, you know, we meet others. Julie Langford is like a scientist who is responsible for like the oxygen kind of intake in the in the place. And she's interesting. Right. Uh, Peach Wilkins is like a smuggler that works with Fontaine, who like seems to have contact with the outside world, which is super cool. That was a fun character. Sander Cohen is perhaps and I think widely considered the most fascinating of all of the kind of Andrew Ryan acolytes. He's an artist. He exists in Fort Frolic and his whole scene where he makes you go kill all these protégés of his and then take pictures of them is really cool. But my favorite part of this, and I don't know if what you did here, Dagan, is that okay. you do not have to kill him. Oh, like, I didn't know that. So when you're in Fort Frolic, you can just leave. And what? then later on, when you go to Point Prometheus and Apollo Square and go to the apartments, he's there. And you fight him there, and then that's the only way you can get access to his 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 apartment. No, I don't think I knew this. And you could take a picture of him, and you get a trophy for it. Oh man! And the trophy's called Irony, which I think is this funny. just speaks to this game's replay value. So yeah, honestly. like so after you fight Cohen, or after you do all of Cohen's bidding, he just stands at the bottom of the stairs and looks at your work of art, and you just leave. That's it. Yeah, you can just leave. <laughs> he, there's like you don't have to fight him, but you have to fight him later if you don't. So that's like one of the cool, like, you know, things that you get to kind of choose in the game, which I think is really neat. I had no idea about that. I'm also curious, Dagan, what you think of some of the areas in the game. Okay. I'm really quite fascinated with Fort Frolic, which we had just mentioned. Fort Frolic is kind of like a mall and like there's casinos and stuff like that. Like it suggests a vibrancy to the city that you don't see again until the DLC for Bioshock Infinite. But I think Fort Frolic and to an extent, even the medical pavilion are places that you could, you know, you you can, you know, the advertisements so are cool. You know, the there's really neat stuff in Fort Frolic, too. One of the there's so many interesting design choices in the game in Fort Frolic. There are broken windows for storefronts and some of the windows aren't broken. Right. Behind them are like med packs and Eve hypos and stuff like that. Right. And you break the window to get them because they're like, oh, and then the alarms go off. And like all these, so there's like all these little design aesthetics. But the other thing that I love digging, and this is one of the, this is one of the things that I didn't even notice or really respect until I played it for probably the second or third time. Okay. Is that there are just environmental odes to the stories of individuals you will never know or never meet. There's one interesting place early on, a guy in a store behind a locked door. You go into this restaurant and then there's like the supply closet. You find a guy fetal in a fetal position with a cash register that tells you an amazing story 
right there. Right. About what everyone's all about in Rapture and what that guy's dying thought was, which was to protect his money. Which is great. That's such a it, great storytelling beat. There are things like that. Like, that's the point I'm trying to make about from a design philosophy in the game yeah. is that things like that, like what's on an enemy in a game is often randomized. Yeah. And if it's not, it doesn't really mean like this guy has 10 pieces of ammo on him and this guy has a dollar on him. Right. But like, it's awesome when you go into like the crematorium or you go into like the, the funeral home and the bodies have money on them. Lots of money on them. You know that the it, there's little things like that all over the place. Yeah. In the humanizing game. touches. Yeah. That it's not it's not just about the audio diaries. It's not just about the overtness of the big daddies and the little sisters. It's not just about Atlas and Frank Fontaine and Andrew Ryan. There's little stories being told everywhere in the game you go in every shop and every point. nook and every cranny if you just look you know one of the things that was lost to me the first time i played the game even was so the story ends up being that jack is andrew ryan's son right andrew ryan has this one has a mistress who gets pregnant there's an amazing scene that plays that out one of the ghost scenes in the game which is so cool she sells andrew ryan you know, as a baby to Frank Fontaine, Frank Fontaine and others do incredible experiments on them, send them back to the surface with the smuggling operation, plant him in society. He's really only a few years old and the plane doesn't coincidentally find its way there. Yes, that's what you find out. You know, it's that he was sent back to help him when he needed it. And this is where the next question comes in. Okay. Christopher Biesinger wrote in, Barrett Boswell also had similar thoughts. Would you kindly? <laughs> Three simple words that left such an impact. How did you react? To this moment it was spoiled for me <laughs> you're the fucking worst i know i really am but you know what it's you still have to appreciate its genius because first of all what a twist i mean in the be i will say that it does seem a little coincidental that coincidental that the plane crash lands at the entrance to this place even i suspected you know of middling intelligence suspected something was up but what a reveal. I mean, if I, again, like if it, it's just my curse of spoiling everything for myself, you know, which I inadvertently do. I don't really do it on purpose. But it still was such a, I still appreciated all the story twists leading up to, well, leading up to the last boss fight, really. But what did you think of it the first time you saw it? Because you, you had a fresh perspective. Yeah, I was like, this is incredible because when you go back, I mean, the game does a little bit of a nice job of kind of playing it, but he really does keep saying it. And when you're, playing the game fresh you don't realize that he keeps saying it's it. so cool would you kindly go to my family in neptune's bounty would you kindly you know like it's really interesting and not and used sparsely enough where it's not like a a canary in the coal mine that's right right up. you don't, ca not you until don't you, catch on right exactly there's no way you're going to catch on so i think that that's kind of brilliant now i must admit that i'm much more fascinated by the story of rapture itself than jack's insertion into the story of rapture because the Civil War happens with or without Jack. The right. decline of Rapture happens. It actually reminds me a lot of The Walking Dead. And what I mean by that is that The Walking Dead to me is interesting, not because of the characters who I don't give a flying fuck about. You know, like I, I can't stand that show because it doesn't go anywhere. No. It doesn't tell you anything. And the interesting thing about The Walking Dead is what happened, not what is going on right. now. What happened? What caused yeah, this? Yeah, which is some, for some reason not curious to anyone in the show. <laughs> you know? They touch on it a little bit at the end of the first season, and that's it. Yeah. and But that's what's interesting about The Walking Dead. That's why I stopped watching it, because I'm like, this is clearly not going anywhere. Is, like, that the th is that the character dangling, though? 
in that show. Not that we're getting. I don't. I, I have. I don't know. I don't know enough. I haven't watched it since like the third or fourth season. I think. Yeah, it's like the same with me. I think it was third or fourth season. So you know, so a nice idea, but but not getting into the meat of what I'm fascinated about. And right. Bioshock does a nice job of doing both. Although you really have to read and research more. There are books about Bioshock and all that kind of stuff. And are there really? Yeah. Have and, you read those? No. And the, you know, there's documentaries on YouTube and there are, which I'm sure maybe you, you're very exhaustive with your research. You probably saw those. And Bioshock 2 fills in a lot of the story about what happened. That and I can't wait for. Bioshock Infinite fills in the story about what happened, too, even though you, the games are, you know, spoiler, Bioshock Infinite doesn't seem like it's connected at all. But it is. But it is intimately connected. OK, I can't which is awesome. Play. I'm going to definitely I'm, I'm all over that. Now, people don't like Bioshock 2 as much because. It, Bioshock 2 is definitely not as good. It's the weakest of the three games. Okay. But it's the only game in the Bioshock series that was not made by Levine. It was made by another team. Oh, and I think that I that's why that. people hate on it, which okay. I think is lame. I think that if you do a good job, you know. Does uh, it feel connected to his vision? Does yeah, it feel- I think it's fine. You know, now they were making Infinite at the same time. I don't think that they really endorse Bioshock 2, but they don't uh, own Bioshock. So I they don't you. really have ownership over what's endorsed or not. You know? Right. So. I look at, you know, Bioshock as being able to juggle multiple balls at the same time. And it, it does it very, very well. I'm a little disappointed to hear that you didn't listen to all the audio diaries. No, because I didn't. Because a lot of the story, especially the late story with, you know, the little sisters and where they came from and all that is lost on you, unfortunately. I got to replay it. I mean, th- this you know the story some... about who they are and, and everything, the little sisters? You know what? No, I actually don't. There's a, I'm actually left with a lot of question marks at the end, but that... I don't know if I even really realized that that play, those played those recorders and those diaries played so much into the story, but that gives me reason. I think it has replay value even without that. But that you could just go listen reason. to a YouTube video of all of the. Yeah, I could do that. I could do that. But it's, this game is worth it. This game is worth not cheating. You know, I definitely would recommend everybody play this game. Oh no! So I have so many questions about that. That's and in fact, I ended when I ended the game. I was a little frustrated with the lack of explanation, but now I'm realizing that's what it comes. That's where the if you want full explanation, that's what it comes through. Well, I'll explain what you want to know. You yeah, want to know yeah, yeah, you yeah. can totally spoil. It. I can't, so it's me. Tenenbaum, who you meet in the game, yep. is a scientist who works with the little sisters. Yep. Tenenbaum discovers the sea slug. The sea slugs come in more in Bioshock too, but they discover this. So basically, she's in Neptune's bounty one day. Okay. Where the fishermen's are, where the fisheries are. And she notices that a guy with an injury is like playing with a slug that's like healing him. He has like a catastrophic injury and she researches this slug and realizes that if you implant this slug into the stomach of a human, it creates like 30 times more atom than the slug itself will will net. Right. But what they realize is that it for some reason only works on little girls. So Frank Fontaine has a front created of all of these charity orphanages with little girls. And they're really taking the little girls and putting the sea slugs into them. This makes them tempting for the splicers to go after because the splicers through Dr. Sushong and others, they're starting to, the atom is so scarce. They want the atom. It's so scarce on the market. This is where the economic thing comes in. Okay. That Sushong creates a way for them to get the atom off of dead bodies. So that's what the little sisters are doing. But the little sisters extracting the atom from the dead bodies is making them tempted to the splicers. So they create the big daddies to protect them, to protect them. And they psychologically link the big daddies at first to one little sister. So one big daddy to one little sister. Okay. And they realize that that didn't work because once the little sister was killed, which the splicer sometimes did, or they some the big daddy was useless. It couldn't do anything anymore. Okay. So they instead psychologically link the splice or the big daddies to all the little sisters and all the little sisters to all the big daddies. Gotcha. gotcha. And so the big daddies guide the little sisters around to get the, the Adam and protect them from the splicers. And one of the cool things about the game, and you were talking about AI earlier, yeah. is that the AI organically fights each other all the time. If you step back, 
AI can kill the big daddies for you sometimes. Right. Which is one of the cool things in which the game. Which I tried a few times. And yes. you can at least take advantage of it where they do a third damage or half damage and then you take the big daddy down the rest of the way. Right, right. The case do, yeah, they so that's kind of the story of where the little sisters come from. The okay. little sisters are basically manipulated orphan girls. Right. That, that I didn't know. That Frank Fontaine has been using his orphanages as a front to stick to stick these sea slugs into them. Got it. And this is when Andrew Ryan starts to become aware. But even then, Andrew Ryan realizes that the unregulated market is not being met. That it is, it's the one Adam is the one product in Rapture whose demand outstrips supply by a significant amount. So even he realizes that the, this is the entire story about how the train is run away already. Like there's nothing when he had a chance to regulate it before everyone was addicted and addled on Adam. He did nothing too. It's too late now. And he there's an audio diary where he talks about and and he discusses he's like talking to himself and he's like, I was an idiot to be investing in fisheries and all this bullshit and cornering all these markets while this guy had the foresight to do what he was doing, not only creating an army that can cr- deal with the security force that Rapture, you know, that Andrew Ryan's and, you know, Ryan Industries employs. Yeah. But that is actually going to let him take over because the conflict at the center of Andrew Ryan's story is that even though it's a meritocracy, he built and funded Rapture himself. So he's in a position of financial and political power that is almost insurmountable unless something like this happens. Right. Got it. You know. So he looks at it as a meritocracy, but it's a flawed meritocracy because no one can possibly everyone's in hock to, to him. That's there. Everyone owes him something. Everyone owes him money. Right. Or something. A right. Product, right. a good. Right. And so that's where the conflict between Fontaine and, and Ryan happens. And that all plays out over the audio diaries. That's I knew. And I knew how the big daddies were connected to the little sister that they were, you know, sort of telepathically linked or whatever. But I didn't know exactly what the reasoning was. And I was actually frustrated because I actually thought there were plot holes. You know, like, okay, they're kind of leaving some unanswered things in here. No, see, that's the beauty of Bioshock. There, there are no plot holes. Which is crazy because it's it's so striking to think that there are so many seemingly insignificant little details and storytelling cues, but nothing's really insignificant. Everything adds up to a whole. It's just the opposite of lazy storytelling. It's just putting so much love and TLC into crafting a story around a video game. You well, know? I mean, dude, it goes deep. I mean, the reason that a lot of the Splicers wear masks is because Steinman fucked them up. You know, the reason that I love those, masks. you know, like the, the there's and uh, where do the masks come from, by the way? It's because they were celebrating New Year's Eve during the Civil War. That's so crazy. That's so cool. So there's nothing left untied. No, everything is a, everything is so thoughtful. Maybe people that are more familiar with the game than I am. I'm sure you are out there can tell me if I'm missing anything, but I don't think so. I mean, I've read exhaustively about this game and it all makes sense. Yeah, and it all especially makes sense once you play the other two. You yes, know? that's that's definitely on because the then it gets really fucking weird that's on then the it list. gets bonkers and dude you gotta play the whole infant bioshock infinite thing with the worship of the founders and stuff it's awesome that sounds really cool like they worship i'm trying to think in the game they worship like washington for his like might it's like a sword a pen and a key are their okay. symbols okay and it's like franklin jefferson and washington that's pretty cool that's right up your alley yeah first it's awesome that's so cool now is bioshock the original bioshock considered the best of the three Considered the best game of yes, the three? Yes, it, it is. Some people think Bioshock Infinite's better. Bioshock Infinite actually takes place before Bioshock. Oh, I know that. In a different and they tie in I don't want to spoil it for you. I don't I don't not too worried about the audience because I think a lot of the audience is already familiar with it. Yeah. But are there any other tethers that you wanted to ask about before we get into these last things that we want to talk about here? You know what? I wanted to ask you, I talk, I mentioned it earlier about talking about Ken Levine since he's such a you know, he's such a lauded developer and a creator. And just what he's, you know, what he's up to more contemporarily. What's he up to now? So I had about a 90 minute Skype conversation with Ken Levine maybe six months ago. Okay. 
and the reason and the reason that I had that was because just to be candid, I was pitching him on a book about Bioshock that I wanted to write. Uh-huh. Now that's not going to happen. Okay. Mostly because I don't think that they want they don't own Bioshock. 2K owns Bioshock, and I don't think they want to distract from their project. That has nothing to do with Bioshock, you know? So Bioshock 3 is happening. Like, a fourth Bioshock game is going to be created. It's been rumored to be being made in Northern California for years. I wouldn't really be surprised if you even saw it at, like, E3 this year. But we discussed, and we had, you know, a great conversation. And, and Ken, you know, I, I wouldn't call Ken, you know, a friend. I would love to call Ken a friend, but I don't think we know each other well enough to do that. But we, we DM back and forth and have, you know, nice conversations. That's and cool. He's an incredibly smart incredibly rigorous and apparently incredibly difficult person to work for. Is that right? And if you read about the development of Bioshock, it was a nightmare. And if you read about the development of Bioshock Infinite, it was even worse because he's apparently exacting. Really? Exacting in in what he expects. You could see that. And there are, you know, people talk pretty, some people, I think that there's a bit of a schism with people that worked for him where some people have no problem talking shit about the experience. Some people talk very highly about the experience. I know multiple people that have worked with him. Okay. Uh, my friend Walt Williams, who's a buddy of mine, who wrote Star Wars Battlefront 2. He wrote Spec Ops The Line, which is one of my favorite games on the PS3, which is a, a game we should absolutely do a, a knockback on because it is such a special game with a t- terrible fucking title. But it's about... It's it's great. It's a, it's a great game. I won't even spoil it for you. But... So those guys speak really highly of him. And, and obviously Steve Gaynor worked for him. Steve Gaynor is responsible for Gone Home and more recently Tacoma. And he's really responsible for Bioshock 2 is really famous DLC. So there are people that are of renown that worked with him that like him. But if you read about it, it was apparently really stressful. And Bioshock Infinite was incredibly late and was made under complete duress, apparently, like just really? total duress. And it's interesting, like it brings up a conversation about like the the what people go through to make these games. And when you really think about it, Bioshock started development and, and was pitched, I think, to 2K in 2004. Okay. It's 2019. Ken Levine has made two games in that wow. time. He's making a third game now at his studio in Boston called Ghost Stories. And, you know, we don't know when that's going to come out. And, and just to be clear, I don't really know anything about it. Okay. He did invite me to come see it. And maybe I will when I'm in Boston. That's cool. Oh. But, you know, he's taking he takes a shine to me, I think. And he, he seems to like me, which, which I'm honored by because I absolutely adore him. And so, you know, there it is worth noting that it wasn't all like, you know, sunshine and whatever making these games that it apparently it was, it was horrifying. Apparently. It can't be. And it was really, really tough to the very end, you know, um, making both of them. I can't even understand. I mean, I think about something I'm I know and I'm very intimate with, which is creating animation, which is very labor intensive. And I think of like the most labor intensive, high quality stressful thing that produces an animated feature film that's what's you know expected to be you know the the biggest budget the highest budget the most labor intensive and i think a video game a high a high-end video game only compounds that because of the not only of the visual elements and the design the animation but you have the programming element on top of everything so i think making a video game i would argue that it's at least one third harder than making an animated you know something that you just watch rather than you just interact with and play. So I can only imagine, you know, the hours spent, you know, the grueling man hours put and the, you know, the thoughtfulness and the creativity and all the creative know-how and the technical know-how. I mean, it's gotta be staggering. It's just gotta be, you know, 
this conversation came up, this similar kind of parallel conversation came up during the, you know, the end development, really when it went gold of Red Dead Redemption 2. And I don't mm. know if you had seen that where the Hauser brothers who own Rockstar were bragging about how much they worked to the point where they were bragging. They were like, we worked 100 hour weeks and stuff like that. And people like were like, aghast. They did or their people? No, they did. did. OK. And what they and then they later clarified that like, that's us. Like we can choose to do that. Our average guy here works 47 hours. OK. A week, OK. But even then I was like, listen. What's the fucking thread through Red Dead Redemption 2? It is way better than almost any other video game right, from yeah, every respect. Ever, right. You don't make video games on 40-hour, two-year fucking schedules. And I'm so sick of the argument otherwise. Yeah, Bioshock and Bioshock Infinite were made under duress. And it's there's no doubt that they're probably struggling making whatever's new because can you imagine having to follow those games up? No. Like, and it's no. not perfect? No. It's impossible. Like it, it's so insane. I'm not I'm not trying to forgive bad workplace practices or, you know, the idea of crunch and stuff like that. But what I do know from people like you, from the people I know in the industry, from myself and my peers in writing and in podcasting and in YouTubing, we work long hours because it's the only way it can get done. I'm not at a fucking computer pushing numbers. You know, I, no offense to anyone that that does nine to five jobs, oh, of course but not. I'm not pushing papers around or doing anything like that. We are, you know, when you're creating something, you put your all into it. Absolutely. And Bioshock could have been half-assed and Bioshock would have been, been forgotten the history like everything else that came out around that time. How many games from 2007 do people really remember? You have like, you know, I think the Orange Box came out, Gal Mario Galaxy, I think a famous Call of Duty game, but it's not like... right. Bioshock stood toe to toe with those games. Right. And Red Dead Redemption 2 made $500 million in a day. So was it worth the 100 hour weeks now Absolutely. that you're getting your six figured, you know, uh, bonus check, you know, and your royalties? You can't put a cap on, you know, creating something of quality. You know, it could be a painting, it could be writing a book, it could be making a video game, it could be making an animated film, it could be making a live action film a piece of pottery, whatever it's, yeah, it's not. And you know what the P I would argue, Colin, I don't want to speak for everybody, whether you're a video game designer or a developer or an animator or a graphic designer or an architect, whatever. But a lot of those people that create those things that the passion is what fuels it. And they're all in for working 60 hour weeks, 80 hour weeks. A lot of the people, I'm not saying everybody. And I'm not saying that the, you know, we get into a sticky wicket when we talk about employers expecting that of their people but a lot of these people you know that's what quality was built on you know that's why Walt, the classic walt disney animated features are so good because those guys killed themselves i mean they checked themselves into hospitals with nervous breakdowns at the end of every movie i mean that's extreme but i'm saying that's what they wanted to do that's what their passion was they wanted to create something memorable they wanted to create something special and wonderful yeah it's their calling card i mean if you're a game, if you're a game developer you're entered the industry after getting out of college, 23, 24 years old, and you want to make games until you're 60, you're going to make maybe eight to 10 games. Maybe, maybe. That's an interesting thought. You know, Isn't and that funny, you want this to be good. Right. The, the thing about Red Dead Redemption 2 is that everyone who worked on it can be like, I worked on that. I worked on Red Dead Redemption 2. <laughs> That's one of the most critically acclaimed best-selling games in a very long time. That's got to be a wonderful you know? feeling. That's got to be a wonderful feeling, dude. And yeah, I know Rockstar is a little hardcore, like they no one is in the credits who quit during development. It's everyone that finished are the only people that are is in that the credits. Right? Yeah, no one in the credits. No, that game was in development for 
six or seven years. If you left during development, you're not in the credits. I kind of like that. And they made like a little website, like an like a website you can go to where all the names are. But otherwise, it's like it's just the people that actually stayed and did it. Dude, that's freaking crazy. And you know, I didn't know about that. Again, I'm I'm with you where I'm like I don't want people to have nervous breakdowns. I don't want people to be working you know mandatory sixty or seventy hour weeks. But what I will tell you, and I know that you are familiar with this, like you said in the animation industry. I know lots of game developers, and I know lots of people that cover games. Yeah, the people that were most passionate are the people that stuck around and have talent to do it. The P I, the people that wanted to punch a clock in games media and get in and out, they don't exist in games media anymore. And the, and the people that like, they were the first to get laid off no, and the of people course. that, you know, and I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but what I'm saying is, is if you want passion, yeah, you're in the right place for it. And you know, someone was going on and you know, we're recording this the week that Anthem EAs and Bioware's Anthem is coming out and people are, you know, reviewing it. And someone at IGN had tweeted out, you know, my alma mater that, you know, someone was in the office for basically two days, like finishing it up and getting the review together. And everyone's like, oh, shouldn't be celebrating these workplace practices. You know, like, you know what? Shut the fuck up. Wow. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. No one. So, made no one. Do if that. you don't understand that that's passion, that's that no passion. one was. I, I worked there for a long time. No one asked him to do that. No one asked him. to do <laughs> That's that. On that didn't him. happen. Right. You know, like he did it because he wanted to he do wanted it. To do and it. instead of apologizing for it, we should embrace that some people are incredibly passionate and they're willing to sacrifice everything to, yeah. be, to be passionate. And, I love that. And I relate to it. I think that's why I you defended Rockstar and I defended all these things because I'm like, you know what? The reason that I got from, you know, I survived six layoffs at IGN, I think, or five layoffs. Wow. You know, holy cow. just based on numbers, I should have gotten my card pulled. That you know why means... I didn't get my card pulled? Because I fucking worked really hard. Yeah, you worked I was there on off. weekends. I was there on nights. I broke news. I never missed an embargo. I never did anything. No matter what it took, I did it. Right. You know what? I started at $40,000 a year. I made a lot more than that when I left. Right. You know, and right. I started as an associate editor and I left as a senior editor, with an, editor with an offer to be editor at large. That wouldn't have happened if I was like, oh, it's five. Bye. Right. Exactly. That's not the way it works. It's just not. And so, you know, and so you don't make a game like Bioshock on 40 hour weeks and you don't make a game like Red Dead on 40 hour weeks. And if you want to criticize that, more power to you. Right. But I would argue that you don't have it. You know, like if I I, that's just my argument. If if you're not willing to put in the extra time and the extra effort, then you don't have it. No. And that usually doesn't show results. No, no, you're absolutely right. And, you know, you could speak to this. You're you're, it's coming from the horse's mouth. I mean, look what you do with CLS and the quality that you put in and your dedication and, you know, countless hours spent. And I have a very similar philosophy. And I know a a lot of people could relate to that. that are listening to us. These things, you know, being creative is a labor intensive thing whether you're an animator or a writer or doing a podcast or whatever it is. And the way I look at it, Kyle, is I'm spending time away from my family to do the things that I'm passionate about. So I'm going to give it 110%. You know, that that's really, that's really the philosophy behind it is that, you know, that passion speaks to the product that you are trying to put out, you know, and that's, that's where it comes from. And this, this game really, I mean, everything I heard about it, Every every single thing, every single comment is just completely justified. It's it was just it was just a wonderful experience, and I love that you know doing the podcast with you and doing knockback is getting me to play more contemporary games, and we're going to play a lot of PlayStation Three games. We talk about Dead Space. I can't wait, dude. I'm, I've been wanting. I you know I've been wanting to play this game for years. That's an I mean, it's an excellent game. It's one of the best. You know, so you know I'm such a retro head, and I love I still love my NES and my SNES and you know everything like that. But now it's time to. It's so nice to be able to step into the arena and really get intimate with these games that I hear so much about. Yeah, well, I mean, we have a lot of games to touch. We, we a lot of them, you know, The Last of Us and the Uncharted games. Oh, and, I can't wait. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to play in, and it's very exciting. And, you know, I, I understand because I don't think it's a lack of 
passion necessarily. It's just a different outlook on life when like two artists, right? They're both working on something. Who do you who do you fundamentally think cares more or do you respect more? The person who is 90 percent there and stays an extra hour to finish it or the person who's 90 percent there is like, I'll finish that tomorrow. Oh, you know, to me, I'm like, I understand if you have a family and you have other things to do. I respect that if you have different priorities. Now, you know, you talked about sacrificing time with your family to do this. I really am throwing the idea of having a real family away to do what I do. Sure. You know, like, absolutely. I don't want to really settle in with and do that kind of stuff. I don't want to sacrifice any time, you know, to doing anything else than what I want to do right now, which is like grow a business and work as hard as I can. That passion speaks to me because. I know from my own experience that it really does work, that the the cream really does rise to the top. I saw it with my own two fucking eyes over and over again. And I know that you have too. Absolutely. And so, of course, the teams that put in the most work are going to make the best games. I don't don't think it's an efficiency thing. I think I really don't. People think like crunching, for instance, and you guys crunch in animation too, but people think crunching is bad production or bad scheduling. And I'm like, it's that, but it's also like, Imagine writing a book saying, imagine you say like, I gave myself two years of eight hour days on weekdays to write a book. I get to the 365th day of the second year. I'm done. Right. Really? Are you really? Because that's the way it is. Because now they put the game together and they're like, this isn't right. Right. This isn't right. This doesn't work. The playtesters don't like this. QA says this is broken. You know, we're getting feedback from this. That's the way video game development works. So at the end of the two years or three years you scheduled, everything's fucked up. Right. You might have followed the schedule acutely. Right. But you're making art in a silo. You're making the engine in a silo. You're making the story in a silo. You're doing the vo- the sound in a silo. You're doing the engineering in a silo. And then you smash it all together and hope for the best. Thoughtless. Thoughtless. Yeah, that happens really neatly. Yeah. It's all not, the time. It's not good, dude. And no, I always say this. No one's going to remember how fast you did something or that you stuck to schedule when the thing comes out. Whether it's the film or the game or the book or the comic book or the... You know, whatever it is, you know, the building plans, the blueprints, whatever. Right. And it's the studios that, you know, it's so funny because it's the hardest working studios that have the clout to say it's done when it's done. Absolutely. The naughty dogs of the world, the rock stars of the world where they're like, it'll be done when it's done. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like and anyone, you know, so I I just want to give people insight in that because I get so frustrated about these conversations that seem so devoid of passion and realism about the things that we expect. Right. If you want to have a clean gaming industry of people working 40 hour weeks, you're going to get the games that are made by teams that make those games in 40 hours. Bargain bin games. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, that's just the way it is. It's not mean spirited. That's just the way, that's just the way it works. You because know? yeah, you have to be perfectionist and you have to, so we're getting on a tangent, but that's, that's what I wanted to, but it's good. It's a good conversation in lieu of what this, of what Bioshock is, because that, that really is what Bioshock is. That's why it's on the tips of everybody's tongue when they talk about best video games of all time. You know. Now, Dagan, do you have a specific favorite moment? Because Joshua McGee and Will Hahn both wrote oh, it. Oh, please. And, you know, they wanted to know what our favorite moments were through the game. Okay. You know, I will say that one of my least favorite moments is the end. I just don't like how the much... Ending, it, yeah, the ending? Yeah. Well, no, not the ending, but the, the last fight with Fontaine. Yeah, it's weird. It's very video gamey. Yeah. I really respect when games don't give you last bosses. Don't have this, like, gauntlet of things to do. Don't. Yeah, don't. Now, some games should and do, and that's great. Yeah. But this, it, it seemed very gamified out of nowhere. Here's the big bad. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? That's stupid. Like, I love that Andrew Ryan thing because it's just, oh my it, God. there's no, nothing to it. It's just, 
the 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 adventure was in getting there. Yeah, the golf club moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, that's that the adventure is getting there. I didn't have to fight Andrew Ryan. Oh my god, you that know? was a great moment. And so I, I think that my least favorite moment is actually at the end. And I understand why people think the game falls apart a little bit at the end because it seemed like it needed to become a video game suddenly. And I didn't, you know, like at the proving ground and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and I'm like, you know, why it's is it very ending like video this? gamey at the end? You know, but I think that my favorite moment, as I said earlier, is everything with Cohen and, and the Fort Frolic moment and letting him live until you see him hours later and you That's, fight him. Yeah. The Fort, that Fort, I can't wait to revisit that. Actually. My, I think my favorite moment, Kyle, because I'm so obsessed with the big daddies and the little sisters. I just, I just think it's such a, it's a, that the image of those characters are just emblazoned in my head. But I think the first time you fight a big daddy, which I think is in the medical pavilion, which I love the medical pavilion anyway. It's so creepy because it's like it's such it's the inherent thing of like this was once, you know, here was the dental office. Here was the whatever the, the surgical wing here. You know, now it's just decrepit falling apart. There. I love that whole environment. But fighting the big daddies for the first time, but also earlier on when you're going to eventually confront um who's the doctor Stein, Steinman Steinman yeah. when you're going to over to his wing you hear and see you know I think you talked about a little earlier a big daddy and a little sister that you can't interact with they're kind of in the you know behind the glass wall and you could see them and hear them and you're like oh shit when cuz you know it's coming you know they're coming eventually so that was a really memorable moment for me that was just yeah, those those big daddies, man. They just that just took my breath away trying to figure that, them out. Now I want to ask you a question before I forget: Is the game a little too easy? Now I say that because you know fighting a big daddy, for instance, it just keeps taking the damage through. You know, I know you you could play the game without dying now, but I certainly didn't. I died a lot of times. Well, I, to be clear, I die, but you just get booted back to whatever you saved last. Time. Oh, so you and you can't use the um the Vita chambers. The Vita chambers. So is it too easy because you have to, you know, essentially that big daddy keeps that the cumulative damage, you know, it stays on them, right? Do you, as you, you know, as you continue, it's yeah. still, you could still. People kinda... people do argue that the game is incredibly easy. Okay. Um, that's why I think bumping it up to the hardest difficulty and shutting the Vita Chambers off is is awesome. Because, right. I played on medium. Let me right. preface by saying that. So Because if hard. you play it on very hard, even if you keep the Vita Chambers on, but if you keep playing on very hard and shut the Vita Chambers off in the menus, which you can do. Okay. The meticulous way that you have to play the you have to play the game. Everything's a danger to you. Like okay. even the, even normal splicers are dangerous. Okay. So I think that it's about like because people have that common complaint. Now I I often bump the difficulty up in the games I play. I just like playing. I, I, I'm a little bit of a, I have a sadistic. Is there three street. difficulty settings or four? Four I think. There's four. Okay. I think there's easy, normal, hard, and very hard. Um, and so I don't think the AI behavior changes or anything like that. You just take enormous amounts of damage. I mean, like when oh that's how it when. A big daddy attacks you, you lose almost all your health. Once. With one, one attack. Yeah. Oh, man. So you have to like be very methodical. You have to have a ton of health packs and or figure it out, you know, and you can't whittle their health down because there are no Vita Chambers, so you're not going to get revived. So <sighs> it's so the way that the, I really think the game is best played in the completely hardcore way that I play it. You know? In fact, I've never that. played a Bioshock game any other way than that. You just you go automatically go to the hardest. Yeah, I did that originally because the trophies were contingent on doing that. Okay. And so I was like, all right, well, I'll play it like this anyway. And it's excruciatingly hard, you know, when you until you, you just have to be patient. Yeah. You have to save a lot and you right. have to like just one by one, just knock these guys out and just be careful, you know, and, Absolutely. and, and buy the right tonics and 
health upgrades and all these I kinds like of things. I like playing it like that. Now, were you a bit were you big into hacking and the pipe puzzles? The pipe puzzles put me off for a day. I was like, I do not like this, especially the mandatory ones. After a day, I was I was I was hooked. I oh, could yeah. not not hack. If anything was hackable, I had to do it. Yeah, yeah, I hack almost everything that I encounter. You know, it's cool too because once you can start crafting, you can get auto hack tools pretty easily and just yeah. start auto hacking things and that kind of takes care of things. But I, I like being prepared in case I want to go back by ammo or I want to go back. Because again, you were you were talking, you weren't, you weren't, but you were talking earlier about some of the criticisms of the economy. Yeah. But I like the scarcity of money. You can only carry $500. Um, you know, the Adam, there's a lot of Adam, but you can't buy everything from the gatherer's gardens based on what you get, you know, so you can actually squander it and buy things that you can find in the, the wild the and all that kind of garden. stuff. So there's a lot of like really risky shit in that regard. But yeah, I liked the hacking mechanic. It gets a little redundant after a while, but I liked bringing like machines and I like, you know, the cameras and stuff on my side. And yeah, the research camera was cool too. Yeah, the research camera is really neat when you get that. About that. Yeah, it makes fighting the enemies even easier. Yeah, that was a really interesting mechanic. I really enjoyed that little touch. It's not a little touch, it actually helps quite a lot. Yeah, it's cool because again, it's driven into the story. Like, Nothing exists just to exist as a mechanic without there having a reason for it to exist in the story. Yeah, everything's very integrated, very well realized. Yeah, everything fits. Super, super good, dude. So I'm just kind of pouring through my notes here. I think we've covered pretty much everything. I mean, you know, the inspirations and all this. I mean, the game was made for $25 million. As of March 2010, 4 million copies were sold. I'm sure that number is much higher now. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's a special game everyone should really experience and enjoy. And I, and I hope that you do. I hope that you choose to follow our advice and take the time out there to play the game. And if you've played it before, play it again. And, you know, expose yourself to something that I think only comes along every once in a while. A game like this, unfortunately, that breaks the boundaries and breaks the mold and gives you something truly memorable and different. These kinds of games really only happen every so often. I play more video games than almost anybody, probably. And I actually gave away a joke Sacred Symbols Award. We did Joke Game of the Year awards on Sacred Symbols because I'm so sick of everyone doing all these serious things. So <laughs> we made up all these awards. And the, I gave an award away to the game I don't even remember playing but have a platinum trophy in. That's how many games that I like. I played where I have this. I played this game. I'm like, I don't even know what this is. That's amazing. What the hell is this? But you played it. I played it enough to literally have all the trophies in it. (laughs) So that just goes to show you that, you know, the innumerable amount of games that we have, they kind of blur together. And one of the fun things about video games is going back, just like with movies and others, there are games that I've played and beaten. I go back and I'm like, I don't remember any of this because I played literally 500 games since then. And so Bioshock is memorable. It, it, it cuts through the way that Symphony of the Night cuts through, the way that Mario 3 cuts through, the way that, you know, Link to the Past and Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask cut through. They're, these games are not common. When you when you really look at the release schedule of games and the fact that P- PlayStation 4 can sometimes get 15, 20, 25 games a week. That's insane. You know, most of these games will never, no one will play them. No one will care about them. Right. The studios will go out of business for Every 10,000 of those, there's a Bioshock. It's amazing. It's you know? amazing. It's so striking that how many, you know, you've experienced so many games, so many modern games and this that this game, this cream still rises to the top for you. Yeah, it was such a joy, man. And it's so cool that it spoke to my OCD, but I do have to go back and 100% it. Yeah, listen to the audio diaries. And again, like, I, 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 think, that, I think it's totally legit to just read them or listen to them. You know, wiki, yeah. the, the wiki, uh, 
for Bioshock is extensive. You guys can go learn. I, you know, I learn a lot about the game by reading it. And you guys can too. All the audio diaries, which are there. is so cool. So people are very obsessive about this. There's also novels about it. And I can't believe. I mean, I can believe it because it's such a it's such a thorough. It's such a it's such an immersive world. Yeah, it's brilliant, and I really do hope that even though it seems like Levine's moved on and Bioshock Three will be made by someone else, even though it's the fourth Bioshock game, whatever they call it, I'm really excited for them to go back and play around with this idea more and. There's just something special about single player immersive experiences like this in, in, a, in a world where we get a shit ton of checkbox games and open world games and stuff. And they're fun. I play them. I love them. There's some games like Far Cry and stuff. I live for those games. I love them. But they're really the same thing over and over again. They really appeal to a mechanical instinct that gamers have that they like to check boxes. They like to shoot things and all that kind of stuff. But games that make you think games that, you know, make you want to. You know, we got a letter here. I won't read it because we're kind of running out of time. But Prince Barutsky wrote in about how, like, this game really made him want to research and watch things and read books and introduce himself to Ayn Rand. And there and there are not a lot of games like that. No, actually, there are almost no games like that. I mean, I I don't know very many games like that at all that make you want to dig deeper when you're done. Yeah, maybe maybe we dig deeper and watch a video or we read about it on Wikipedia or something like that. But a game that makes you want to read, you know, Ayn Rand's 1000 page book. Yeah. That's that's pretty powerful. It's pretty cool, man. I'm I'm happy. I'm happy that I'm initiated now. I feel me too. I'm relieved, actually, because I just didn't know. I my assumption is, is that I couldn't imagine you not liking it. It's so good. But I didn't know, you know, because there are some people that that don't actually. There are. I see quite a few comments, you know, about people that just really don't care for the game or think it's overrated or. Yeah. I mean, Nicholas Brillhart wrote into us and he said, my first time playing Bioshock was the demo on Xbox 360. And I thought it was so boring that I didn't even finish it. It wasn't until 2014 that I played Bioshock Infinite on PlayStation Plus that I went back to the original. At this point, I knew from the start not to trust Atlas and quickly put together that he was Fontaine. I like the setting and the mind control twist is cool. But outside of that, I think the game is pretty underwhelming. Mm. I think you're out of your mind, but (laughs) you are entitled, of course, to that opinion. opinion. And David S. Graham wrote in to ask if we would ever get the chain tattoo from Jack. I wouldn't, but I'm sure someone out there has it. Oh, God, they have to have it. Jack, again, I don't know why you would get that tattoo because Jack is like not really the interesting part of the game. No. At all, no. actually. Like you're kind of a conduit. He's a total conduit. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that is our discussion on Bioshock. And we will certainly get the Bioshock 2 and Bioshock Infinite in the future here it's on Knockback. Awesome. Now, Dagan, would we let, should we wrap up with some new uh, and some old segments, actually? We will do dad jokes. Yeah, we'll do a dad joke. I'll say that for the and very the quote? end. Yeah, we'll do quote me on that. Quote me on that, right. So... This is just a little end segment for for Knockback Wave 7, you guys. I'm going to ask, I'm going to say a quote, and Colin's going to tell me the movie it's from. And if he has any difficulty, I have a couple of backup quotes. And we'll keep score. Okay. Colin's one for one so far for this round. Red Dawn was our first quote. Spoiler alert. (laughs) What episode is this now? This will be 55. This is 55. I think, if we put them up in order, yeah. All right, I'm just going to read these in order. Okay. All right, Kyle, you tell me what film it's from. Okay. Patience, my blue friend. You'll have your winnings before the sun's set. <laughs> that's episode one. <laughs> you got that. That's Qui-Gon, that's Qui-Gon that. talking to Watto, I think, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. That, I'm, I'm surprised you got it that quick. I was. I thought I was going to have to read a couple more, which is- I don't uh, want to hear anymore. No. Please. I had to do Phantom Menace. I didn't want to. We always talk about the good Star Wars movies. Unfortunately, I'm two for two. <laughs> You are two for two. (laughs) Regrettably. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You ready for my dad joke? Let's do it. All right. Is it a Bioshock dad joke? No, that would have been great, though. I don't even know what you would do. Anyway. Okay. Here we go. 
I went to the zoo and saw a baguette in a cage. The zookeeper told me it was bred in captivity. (laughs) (laughs) That's awful. That's pretty bad. How many of these exist? So many. There are so many. They're all bad puns and double entendres. You ever notice that? They're all all, puns. Yeah, they're almost all puns and double entendres. (laughs) Like that's like the, the genre of the dad joke. I'd like to know the percentage of people listening right now that actually squirm and are just completely put off by them and or that, you know, versus who really enjoys them. Who just shuts the podcast off? Just like, all right, dig and I can't do this. I can't listen. Like when I say like, all right, it's the end and they're like, done. <laughs> We can go now. <laughs> we don't need to hear Dagan's stupid dad jokes. Well, I like them. And they were they're brought back by popular demand and maybe threatening demand. People people like them. But we might just be hearing from that contingent and not the other contingent. I don't know. Nah, who knows? Who cares? Actually, we should care. But we we and we do care. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see you have the history of the future. Blake J. Harris's new book. Did you buy yeah, that? No, Blake sent that to me. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, I don't know if he listens to the show, but he's we talk over Twitter. Seems like a super nice guy. Yeah, he's a sweet guy. Lo- love his other book. His what? Console Wars. Console Wars is just amazing. I think I read it twice, actually. But yeah, he was nice to send me that. That's a uh, pre-published copy, like not for... Uh, yeah, he know. sent me that too. And then he sent me a, a signed copy of the hardcover, which is nice. Oh, he's going to be on Fireside Chats. And actually, oh, really? when I go back... Has he been on yet? Yeah, he's been on once, but he's doing a media tour now. So. I don't know if I saw his Fireside Chat. So he'll be in LA and we will be discussing the book. I haven't actually had a chance to read it yet, unfortunately. Seems like a super cool dude. Yeah, he's a sweet guy. He's from the East Coast? Yeah. Blake? Okay. Yeah, he lives in New York City. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he lives in Astoria, I think. Okay, nice. So, Beer garden represent. Yeah, there you go. There we go. Dig, that's all we have for this episode of Bioshock, or Knockback About Bioshock. I'm so happy to do it. Me too. I'm really, really glad to get that out into the wild. I think people are going to enjoy it. I hope they do. You can always give us your feedback. Let us know on Patreon or on Twitter. Remember to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you can at any level, gets you different perks. It really is appreciated. It lets us keep doing this show. Uh, without your support, we simply wouldn't be able to do this. So we thank you for that. If you listen to us on free feeds or even if you don't and listen to us on Patreon, it would be appreciated if you left us nice reviews on iTunes so we can find new audiences algorithmically and let your friends and family know about the wonder, the might and the majesty of Knockback. Dagan. Thank you, Mr. Bubbles. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Bubbles. The great will not be constrained by the small. No, no, they won't. They really won't. No. As far as I know, I don't know. No I'm gods. small, but I don't. Just men. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. CJ Anderson, Morgan Ashley, Sean Battershaw, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, Mark Boggio, Eli Bosford, Barrett Boswell, Spencer Brand, Miguel Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Will Caldwell, Luis Cancato, Patrick Carper, William O'Carroll, Brian Chan, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Matthew Cooper, Gio Corsi, Nick Cottrell, Cutter Crow, Nick Cummings, Daniel Diamore, Daniel Delanikos, Mitchell Durkash, Knight Draft, Martha Emery, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Fodios Frangos, Michael Gallier, Blake Garcia, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem El Ghanem, Toothless Gibbon, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Kyle Hagel, Wyatt Henry, Asa Haas, Azan Isa El Ricey, Josh Yeager, Justin Yeager, Greg Julefs, Anton Kay, Jeremy Key, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Jackson Lastiqua, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Ashlyn Lee, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Mark Liberto, Lou and Ray Loper, 
Elijah Lopez, Colin Love, Josh M, Ryan T. Mandel, Peter Mark, Michael Martinez, Nicholas Mast, Zachariah McAdoo, Joe McPartland, Wyatt McVeigh, Dennis Meinchin, Andrew Mendoza, Christopher Middling, Albert Miranda, Patrick Malloy, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, Donnie Nolan, George Anthony Nunez, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius S. Peterson, Enrique Perez, James Perone, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Jeff Pollard, Louis Powell, Lawrence F. Prokop, Michael Renner, Titus Rex, Peter Reynolds, Jonathan Rice, Mark Richardson, Toby D. Riebenscheiner, Austin Riley, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, John Schultz, Chris Schaefer, Michael Shanholtz, Toby Schutman, Glendon Cole Simper, Joshua Smallwood, Andrew Smith, John Tabanillo, Ahmad Tamar, Joseph Thayer, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Tam Tran, Adam Van Curen, Raymond Joshua Vargas, Michael Vecchio, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Mike Wayan, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, That Rescue Guy, Casual Misfits Gaming, Super Shot ST, Throw 7, Infinite, Homeworld Hub, Mad Mock Media, Mubarak, Sticks and Crits, Richter 86, Andrew, Ian, Chris, Dav 9834, Donk 2015, and Gavin.